Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Today I'm speaking with John McWhorter. John teaches linguistics, American studies, and music history at Columbia University. And he is also a new contributor at the New York Times. And he's also a contributing editor at The Atlantic and the host of the language podcast Lexicon Valley. His writing has appeared everywhere. And uh, he's the author of over 20 books. But uh, most importantly, he has written a new book titled Woke Racism, How a New Religion Has Betrayed Black America. This was the book he was just beginning to work on last time we spoke. And in today's episode, we get into his thesis. Uh, We talk about how the social justice narrative on the left has become a new religion and how this faith has taken over our institutions, and what to do about it. Anyway, those of you who know him know that John is one of our most important voices on this topic, and those of you who don't yet know him are in for a treat. And now I bring you John McWhorter. I am back with John McWhorter. John, thanks for joining me again. My pleasure. So a lot has happened since we last spoke. I guess the the first thing I just want to touch in passing is that you have been hired as a columnist for the New York Times, which um, I'm sure it was not a surprise to you, but it was a very pleasant surprise to many of us. (laughs) And it it really is a, a measure of how highly esteemed you are that so many people viewed it as the, the single event that arrested the gray lady's slide into the abyss <laughs> or uh, postponed her, her suicide. It's quite wonderful to see. Is it a fig leaf for um, further unrepentant sinning on their part, or do you, is it the sign of some kind of real course correction? Well, you know, I actually was quite surprised because I am much less targeted and ambitious than I think a lot of people have reason to know. And the last thing I expected when we spoke, or even 10 seconds before I got their email, was that the New York Times would ever want me on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And I haven't been, you know, I, I haven't been blackballed by them in any way. I've had, you know, plenty of things to write for them, but I never thought that anything would be regular. And as far as I can see, the truth is that the more you dig into those hideous things that happened at the Times, particularly in 2020, mm-hmm. as with all of these things with what the people I call the elect, it's not the majority feeling at the Times. It's a certain cadre of people who ha- exert an in- a disproportionate effect because everybody's afraid of being called names. Yeah, And I think that that was going on a lot at the Times and that then there was a kind of a, a reckoning. That's my sense of it. And so I think that it's not just me. I think other things will be happening. And perhaps some of this is that we're coming out of the pandemic and that none of us saw the extremity that was coming. But yeah, I was quite surprised. It isn't something that I cultivated, and I did not walk around thinking of myself as Times material. And it's been a, it's been quite a challenge, but you know, better than being bored. Yeah, well, it's great to see, and um, I, I just w- I wish you the best of luck there. Thank you. We we certainly need the Times, and uh, we need you to have as um, prominent a platform as you can find, and that's certainly one of the best remaining in journalism. And you know, also, I want to inject very quickly that. 
I have not felt at all muzzled by the time some people ask, mm. nor when I say something leftish, am I trying to cater to them as right. some people on social media seem to think I'm just saying the things that I really believe. And so far I have no tales to tell. It's all been working out very nicely. Right. Well, if uh, your new book is any indication, you are as yet uh, unmuzzled. <laughs> so, so I should announce this book properly. This is a book that that I think we probably discussed uh, in our last podcast because you were beginning it to write coming. it then. Yeah. yeah. And this is the book that the world has been waiting for. This is the book that can be really taken in hand like a hammer and hurled at that increasingly grotesque edifice of moral confusion that is now looming over everything. And the, that book is Woke Racism, How a New Religion Has Betrayed Black America. And I, I, I must say, I really, I, I just got the book, and I, so I read it over the last two days. It's a book that can certainly be comfortably read in a day or two, Good. which is really a strength. I, I'm happy you did not write a 500-page no book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, you, I think you kept our, our friend Steven Pinker at, at some distance during this process, because <laughs> his books are- uh, With his 500-page books. Famously right. doorstoppish. But um, let's start with this claim to be confronting a religion, which is it's a framing that some people will chafe at. And I want to read something you say about midway through the book, which frames this nicely. America's sense of what it is to be intellectual, moral, or artistic, what it is to educate a child, what it is to foster justice, what it is to express oneself properly, and what it is to be a nation, is being refounded upon a religion. And I really don't think that overstates it. And so I want us to deal at the outset with any concern that really you're, you're, this, you're strawmanning the situation or exaggerating it. There's, there's one more thing you say a few paragraphs down. The problem is, is that on matters of societal procedure and priorities, the adherence of this religion, true to the very nature of religion, cannot be reasoned with. They are, in this sense, medievals with lattes. So, um, which is certainly amusing. So there's two claims here. There's the claim that um, we're dealing with a religion with all of the, the invidious irrationality implied. I mean, so one problem with this framing possibly is that so many people think religion is a good thing and a necessary thing, and so what's wrong with having a religion? And so this mm -hmm. is not really the sense in which you're using it. It's all of the the unreasoning, dogmatic, intolerant, and the fake meaning derived of, of living in that way that, that, you, mm -hmm. um, that you're targeting here. But you're also saying that because it has gotten to this point, because it is in fact so uncoupled from real processes of reasoning, these people can't be argued with, and that mm -hmm. we just simply have to figure out how to get around them. And so that's kind of a twin claim that I want you to address at the outset, because it's going to bump some people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, um, it's a really interesting thing, because I think a lot of people are under the impression that the question we're supposed to be asking is, how can we reason with the kind of person who comes from the hyper-woke left and is asking us to do things that don't make any sense and even possibly hurt people? How can we make them open to diversities of opinion? How can we make them see that their ideas aren't the only legitimate ones in terms of our general discourse? And my claim really is, and this is not 
me beating my chest. This is not me speaking from frustration. It's me thinking very calmly. People cannot be reasoned with on, for example, race when it comes to issues like that. And I mean white people as much as black people. And the truth is, woke racism is written mainly to white people. This is one where I'm going to make white people mad as opposed to black mm. people because they are the ones who are falling for this sort of thing and thinking of it as good. But you can't reason with people on race with these issues any more than you can convince somebody that Jesus doesn't love them if they've come to believe that. I think we waste energy supposing that quoting John Stuart Mill at these people and hoping we can have some sort of situation where we meet them halfway, it's simply not possible. And I've tried to speak to enough of these people. I've observed them. There's nothing to be done. And so the issue is, how do we exist gracefully among them? How do we keep them from making us dance to their tune? They, they won't change. The world is going to be imperfect in that regard, as in so very many others. The religious point is going to irritate a lot of people. And I can understand that because, for one, I am an atheist, and that seems to have gotten around. And I do have a certain impatience with religious belief, and that seems to have gotten around, and I think people can smell it on me. But the truth is, it is more than ideology, or it's very usefully referred to as something other than ideology. This is something different from people who wouldn't let go of revering Stalin in Upper West Side living rooms in the 1930s hmm. and 40s. And it's partly because of just the almost eerie formal parallels between the way these people think and fundamentalist Christianity, right down to the original sin and the white privilege being so similar. And also, there is the fervency of it. There's the sense that if you don't agree, it's not that you're going to argue with somebody over your martini. That was you know, the Stalinist back in the 30s and 40s, Lillian Hellman yelling up into your face. That was one thing. It's another thing, though, for people to treat people who don't think like them on these issues as heretics and feel that they can't be in the same room with them, that they need to lose their jobs, that people need to be defenestrated for not going along with the ideology. That is what we associate with one of the seemiest and saddest aspects of religion. I actually think, okay, maybe if it were a religion that really were uplifting Black people and people were doing this for reasons that didn't always follow logic from A to B to C, but it worked, okay, that'd be fine. The problem is that this is a shitty religion. It's a really mm. unfortunate religion that we're seeing emerge, and the people in question genuinely don't know it. We have to know it. Yeah, yeah. I've been using the term cult to convey all of the um, denigration of, of this style of, of uh, thinking and, and organizing without confusing anyone who, for whom the term religion w would be positively valenced. Right. But I mean, the right. one thing that cult loses, because you know, cult is just for virtually everyone, it is intrinsically pejorative, what it loses that religion captures is one, the fact that this is, this is now so widespread that it really is, you know, though it is a minority of true believers, we're talking about a lot of people. Mm -hmm. It's a very large cult uh, or a small religion. And there is something, we'll talk about the various flavors of insincerity that can be found here, but there is something sincere and pure about the psychological effect of being galvanized in this way. Definitely. I mean, people are, are really finding purpose in just throwing over everything in subservience to this new catechism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It feels good. You can see that it's giving them endorphins. It's giving them a sense of purpose. 
It gives them a sense of being ahead of the curve. Don't we all like that? It gives them a sense of belonging. You have a crowd of people who think in this way. It's a minority of people, but that means that you have a sense of being special. And there's a glow about these people in many cases. The religious part captures that. Cult sounds menacing. Cult, and you're thinking of something that went on in Guyana. Whereas with this, you see people who are truly glowing with the idea that they understand that racism exists and that they're going to show that they understand that racism exists. And they're also a little afraid of somebody who would accuse them of not knowing that racism exists. And so there's just this warm, shining glow. And in the meantime, they're throwing black people under the bus in countless ways, but it doesn't matter to them because the point of this religion is very specifically to question power differentials. Never mind doing anything about them. You question power differentials and specifically when it comes to race, you show that you know that racism didn't end in 1966. Period. Stop. Mm. And that's just not enough. That is not worthy of the legacy of the civil rights movements that actually created change in lives for real people. Yeah, and this is the, one of the paradoxes here. It, it's not enough. It's in some ways completely ineffectual. In fact, it doesn't even pretend to try to achieve anything. And and and, and trying to be pragmatic is uh, denigrated as uh, I think I think the term is solutionism. White, uh, right? Yeah, exactly. yeah, so, yeah. But on the other hand, it is altogether too much in every other respect. I mean, it, it's exaggerating the problem wherever it in fact finds it and pretends to find it in places where it doesn't exist, and is making scapegoats of people who really are guilty of nothing but just nothing beyond, in many cases, being slightly tone-deaf or just out of step with these new uh, norms of thought crime. Yeah, it's, um, it is a dismaying thing because I get the feeling it's partly a symptom of modernity. Where things were really, truly horrible for Black people, nobody could afford to massage their sense of victimhood the way Black people are encouraged to, the way white people are now encouraging us to do. It would have felt inhuman for white people to do it, and it would have felt truly discouraging and dehumanizing for Black people to do it. You didn't exaggerate about what was already so bad. Mm. Only when things get to the point that they're not perfect, but people are doing pretty darn well, and that is certainly the case on race for just about everybody in this country over the past five decades. Only then can you develop a recreational victimization complex where you exaggerate to the degree that we, all of us now, this is not just black people, this is America. Educated America is taught to exaggerate. That can only happen when things are pretty good, which means that there's an awful lot of mendacity going on. And what bothers me is that part of this mendacity is due to how easy it is to be part of this religion. And I know partly because when I was a teenager back in the 70s, and you know, you have insecurities when you're a teenager, you're trying to get a sense of yourself, you're trying to show off for, you know, in my case, you know, showing off for girls, etc. You, you, you reach for things. And it will surprise many people to know that I had a little spell where I was calling people and things racist just because it felt good, because it would get a jump out of people, because I felt like I was kind of ahead of the curve, because I'd been told by other people that's what I was supposed to do. It felt like it made me feel like I belonged. It gave me a way of dismissing things that I sometimes found challenging. If I hadn't done something well enough to get the top spot, it was very easy for me to say it was because of racism rather than just that, you know, maybe I just wasn't as good at it as that white guy down there. That was that was easy. And it was something that I was doing because I wasn't quite sure of myself. I see grownups 
doing this. And I think to myself, what I was doing was rather recreational. It was therapeutic. It wasn't real. I grew out of it. And I think a lot of people grow out of it. But we're being encouraged now to think of that state, that larval state in one's psychology as something that you're supposed to stop at or return to as if to be an adult about such things, specifically race and specifically after about 1966, is somehow a regression or a mistake or something that needs to be undone. I don't think so. I don't like being told that we're supposed to be immature. And that's what a lot of this is. Mm. Okay, so what would you say is the core tenet or tenets of this new religion? The core tenet, and of course, as with you know, many group movements, it's not that everybody could recite this chapter and verse, but the core tenet is battling power differentials must be the core of all intellectual, artistic, and moral endeavor, and those who are not committed to that being the core focus, must be barred from public presence. That is the basic idea. And many people, if confronted with that, who are part of this religion, would be perplexed that anybody would question it. They would think, oh yeah, of course, we're going to battle the perniciousness of disproportionate power. But the problem is, that is one of maybe about 200 things that a human being can be concerned with in this world. We do need to watch out for power. If I weren't speaking colorfully, I'd say it's maybe one of about 10 things. The idea that it should be at the very center of an entire academic career or the entire curriculum of a private school or basically everything that Blue America has talked about since roughly June 2020, that's a very fragile conceit. And frankly, it's not advanced. I think a lot of its perpetrators think that this is advanced thinking, that we're taking things to a new level. When really what this is, is dumbing us all down. It's turning our eyes away from things that are equally urgent, not to mention just equally interesting. I really worry about younger people today growing up within this atmosphere where true curiosity is discouraged in favor of this religious pursuit disguised by the use of words like intersectionality and hegemony and social justice. It's really returning us to roughly 1250 in France, you know, what an intellectual was then. There were only certain things you could intellect about. You feel almost sorry for Thomas Aquinas, for example, because you wish that he could open up more with all of that brilliance. We're now back to that, except because it's called intersectionality, it's supposed to be sophisticated. Yeah, and there and there's so many contradictions at the heart of this. So, for instance, let me just, just take this claim about power. There's so many contexts now where power has effectively been flipped. So to be a, a, a cisgendered white guy is not to have the power of status and the leverage of persuasion. I mean, what, what, in what, you know, I, I was recently at a conference and uh, was speaking to a, um, someone who worked for a very prominent media tech property that I won't name, but she was high up at the organization and she said to me, you know, actually confided in me under the brackets of uh, confidentiality mm. that um, you know her son was graduating college and the, the the idea of of hiring him or anyone like him at this company now was unthinkable i mean mm -hmm. just the, the the kid would have to be the next claude shannon to be exactly. considered right she open she openly said this to you privately she she op openly yeah. said this to me privately and openly said that this could not be divulged in any way mm -hmm. that, that could reveal who or what I'm talking about. And 
I would allege, I'm sure I've said something similar in previous podcasts, that there's probably not, this will sound like hyperbole, but I, I would bet a fair amount of money that it isn't. There's probably not a single desirable organization in this country now. Mm-hmm. A, you know, company, educational institution, nonprofit, where a black applicant to be a student or to be an employee mm-hmm. would be at a disadvantage now. Mm-hmm. Given equivalent qualifications, a black applicant would be positively advantaged and in in the top ten percent of every organization, and this is this extend this to media, journalism. That's safe to say. Everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I can't think of any exception to that, definitely. And the thing is, it's it's funny. I don't consider myself a conservative, but I find myself yearning for roughly 2010 these days. It's not as if this new version of equity where a white male is truly disadvantaged. It's not a matter of the controversy over affirmative action 25 and 30 years ago where you can prove that white people weren't really disadvantaged, but it really is the case Mm. that a white boy is going to be severely disadvantaged on the job market just because he is not a pretty color and hiring him is not anti-racist. That is something new. And I think really we had gotten to the point before, say, June 2020, where any civilized person, any civilized organization had its eye out for people who were not white men. That message seemed to have gotten through to a major point, to the point that, you know, some white men were already complaining. But what we're doing now is going back to what in 1966 was called tokenism. That was considered one of the nastiest things you could say about a hiring policy, Mm. that it was tokenism. Now, suddenly that's archaic. And if you ask people what the difference is between now and the tokenism that they talked about on All in the Family and the Jeffersons, well, they look over your shoulder and they tell you it's complicated, but it's not. We're going back to tokenism. If there aren't enough Black people, for example, qualified for a certain activity or a certain endeavor, then the idea is to qualify more Black people for it, which will involve waiting a generation until they exist and are ready to get jobs. It also requires acknowledging, as I don't think any multicultural group of humans ever have until now, that there are different cultural predilections, that it might be that there just aren't that many Black people who want to play the bassoon. I would suspect that there aren't. That doesn't mean that there aren't some, but probably there are very few Black people who grow up thinking, I'm going to take up this peculiar, heavy, expensive instrument that nobody seems to want to hear anyway. I actually like the bassoon very much. Mm -hmm. But no, now we're supposed to say that if there are very few Black bassoonists, then it's because it's there's racism and that people don't like black people or black people don't have the resources to become bassoonists. It might be that if black people had all the resources in the world, they might not choose that instrument. Or to avoid the cartoonishness of that example, they might not be as interested in classical music as, for example, many East Asian immigrants' kids are. They might not be as interested. Yes, there will be some black oboists, but maybe not very many. And that there's nothing wrong with that. There's no room for acknowledging different cultural predilections, i.e. diversity, in our current discussion. And all of this is dumb, dumb logic. It's a Mm. person coming along with a 10-year-old's vision of how things are supposed to go. But because they'll call you a racist on Twitter if you don't agree with them, you just bow down to their biddings. This is not the way a mature society is supposed to operate. We're going backwards. It's frightening, isn't it? Mm. Okay, well, let's push into even more fraught territory. 
than uh, classical music, because obviously the disparities that people will ascribe to racism, uh, systemic and otherwise, exist more or less everywhere in our society. And mm-hmm. it's, um, again, there are so many contradictions and sources of confusion here to, to untangle. You know, first, the caveat that perhaps I should have issued at the beginning, although, you know, it truly should be superfluous. Uh, the caveat is obviously we are coming from a history of you know, truly odious racism that cannot be denied. And mm-hmm. it is not in the lifetime of any person listening to this podcast where that has been effectively denied by sane, educated people, right? I mean, we are, mm-hmm. we're climbing out of the darkness, mm-hmm. but we have climbed quite a ways. And there's a source of confusion here that you point out in the book in various places, which is really worth highlighting, which is to say that even if it's quite clear that a current problem is due to racism in the past, mm-hmm. you can draw a straight line between whatever it is, redlining and mm-hmm. you know disparities in wealth between the white and black community, say, it doesn't mean that the persistence of that problem, in this case, wealth inequality, is due to racism in the present, right? So mm-hmm. it's the, kind of the origin story and the, and the current conditions of maintenance that are easily confused. And this relates to crime, it relates to disparities in education, health disparities in you know, health care or attitudes you, you know, toward receiving health care, right? So you, do, you can draw a line from the Tuskegee experiments to a certain attitude toward mm-hmm. doctors and, and the medical establishment, you know, which you know, in, the, in the aftermath of Tuskegee would be quite understandable, which persists to this day. But it doesn't mean that current attitudes that one can find in the black community, let's say toward vaccination, is due to actual racist policies or people in the, in the mm-hmm. medical establishment today. That part is worth sorting out. But what would you say to someone that, uh, and this is also something you address in the book, what would you say to someone that at this point in the conversation would want to pull the brakes and say, listen, this is a tempest in a teacup. This is something that's happening on college campuses. This is something that concerns overeducated people like yourselves. You know, a white guy like me just doesn't like to be inconvenienced in having to pick his words carefully in conversations like this or in, or in any other context. It's, this, in some sense, this is all a species of white privilege or mm-hmm. elitism. And what should really be addressed is the looming problem on the other side of uh, the circus here, which is real racism, a real burgeoning movement of something like white supremacy, you know, mm-hmm. in the aftermath of Trump. We've got QAnon and we've got people storming the Capitol, but we don't have our priorities straight. Yeah, that's um, an interesting thing that I've heard from many people. And the answer to that is what institutions are those people taking over? And I've noticed that there is a debate team trick where people then pretend that the question is what institutions are people of conservative politics taking over? And of course, you could talk about a little thing called the Supreme Court, et cetera. But the issue is, what about these people, you know, with their fists bared and their Confederate flags, you know, running up the steps? What institutions are they taking over? There are more such people than there were 10 minutes ago. Yes, social media has a way of taking care of that. But what are they spreading their tendrils into? Because what's going on on the left is that entire institutions of learning and thinking and justice and art are being 
turned completely upside down. And the idea that that doesn't matter, that that's just a bunch of white men complaining, is anti-intellectual. It's no-nothing. And it, frankly, is a symptom of the traditional anti-intellectualism of America, I think. Nobody in France, at least publicly, would ask that question if institutions were being threatened in that way. And then there was also, say, you know, Le Pen and his friends on the mm. right. These things do matter. And as far as the whole systemic racism argument, the idea that if you see a disparity, it's due to racism, that you apply the sentence, it's racism, is extremely elementary. And until about 10 minutes ago, it was something that you heard from a kind of fringe left professor or community activist. And you always knew that it was a little bit, it was kind of a bloviation. You didn't take it completely seriously. And I think this was true of a great many people, black and white, including people left of center. But everybody has always known what a grievous oversimplification that is of the way a society works. And yet, when it comes to race, we're encouraged, especially today, to pretend that that makes sense and to anoint the people who put it forth as brilliant. I remember back in, way back in 2010, for example, I remember talking to a, a black reporter. This person was not and is not especially famous. If I said the person's name, it wouldn't help, and I'm not going to give the name. Mm. But we were talking about racism, and she was not a fan of mine. She had been assigned to interview me, but I could tell that she you know, thought of me as this, you know, this reactionary right-winger, as a lot of people like her tended to think back then more than they do now. But we're keeping everything civil. And at one point I asked her, so what is your evidence that racism is this hideous scar running through our society right now to the extent that you're implying? Yes, racism exists, but what I want you to really tell me what you're talking about. And what she said and how calmly she said it was what really struck me. She said, well, I live in um, a disadvantaged black neighborhood and there's a school in it where almost every kid who goes there is white or South Asian. And it's one of these elite public schools where you have to take a test to get in, et cetera. And because for historical circumstances, it happens to be in what is now, surroundingly, a mostly brown neighborhood, mostly black neighborhood. She said, all the white kids, you, I see the white kids going in there every day, and I just say, that's racism. You know it's racism. Okay, but the sentence, it is racism, implies that she thinks that the reason is some sort of racism going on now. And I guess if you pumped her, which I didn't bother to because it makes people too angry, she would say that there's some sort of subtle racism on the part of white teachers that keeps black kids from doing well. But never mind that those black kids have had mostly black and Latino teachers for generations. And even if they didn't, what exactly is this subtle racism that would keep somebody from being able to take a test well? And if you ask that question, people's eyes just roll. Now, the reason that so many white kids are going to that school and the surrounding black kids are going to crummy public schools elsewhere in the neighborhood can be traced to aspects of racism that trace all the way back to the Civil War, certainly. But those are things that happened almost all in the past, and therefore you can't stamp out that racism. Now, many of the people who talk this way, if I say this, will say, oh yeah, we know. But they don't act like they know because they say it's racism, pretending that English is a language that doesn't have tense. You're supposed to look at that school and say, it's racism that caused that, which creates a whole different set of responses that one might have, other than standing there with a baleful expression and saying, that is racism, as if there's some racism that we need to battle right now. The only reason that you allow that kind of lapse 
in logic that you would otherwise apply. These are people who are quite capable of thinking from A to B to C. It's because it feels good to adopt that view of things and therefore fashion yourself as having a certain insight. But it's not insight. Nothing is that elementary that we actually value, that actually gives you a challenge. Why in the world are we accepting this notion that when it comes to Black social history and only that topic, everything is as easy as ABC? It's really infantilizing. And yet we're supposed to think of it as fierceness and sophistication. It's a tragedy that's going mm. on right now. So what are we to think about affirmative action? Uh, you know, there's really two forms of affirmative action that only one goes by that name, but there is a, there's a lowering of standards that you point out with respect to what passes as, as intellectual product at this moment. If, if your skin is of the right color or if you're you know, from the right uh, uh, victimized identity group, right? So you, you mm -hmm. can be flagrantly irrational mm -hmm. and really contemptuous of reason, uh, mm -hmm. explicitly so, and get applauded for it if you're you know, someone like Ibram Kendi. I, mean, I, don't, know, I don't know if you ever saw mm -hmm. Kendi asked to define racism. I think he was at the Aspen Idea <laughs> Sam, Festival. Sam, I, I, tweeted, I tweeted that out because I consider oh that to be an God. emblematic minute of our times. Yes, yeah. Exactly. I mean, so I, I can only imagine what have, would have happened to me had I been on that stage asked to define anything having performed in that way. It's just... You would have been eviscerated. It's exactly. just unthinkable. Yeah. And yet mm -hmm. this is, in that crowd, it's almost a, a spiritual accomplishment to be able <laughs> to be satisfied with that kind of, it's, it's not even pablum, you know, it's, it's not even <laughs> tautology. It's just, it really is just a, a fuck you to the standards of argumentation that would, would be applied to anyone else. So, it, you know, it should be infuriating to people that it, it has this much leverage in our culture now. It's impossible to exaggerate. In, certainly in cities, right? Certainly, you know, if you, if you live in New York or Los Angeles, if your kids go to private school or decent public schools, or you know, you know I mean, I, I I would expect almost any public school at this point. But if you're if you're in the on the urban side of the famous urban rural divide in our society, I mean, this is just coming in under the door, through the transom, through the windows. I mean, it, it is just an absolute siege. It really is that. And and so any allegation that we're exaggerating the nature of the problem. I mean, guess if you're in a tiny town in Kentucky, yet yeah, maybe this is invisible, but not in a city at the moment. Mm -hmm. No, yeah. I, it's a lot of why I wrote woke racism, and by a lot I mean most, is, although a lot of people are going to miss this, is that I'm defending black people because of sometimes a sense of almost personal insult. Before the lockdown, about six months before the lockdown, I was at a very interesting and very intense event. And I hate to harp on this person because Glenn Lowry and I have spoken too much about Ibram Kendi, and I know he's, he hates me, but he's trying his best. But at this event, there was Thomas Chatterton Williams, who is with me, one of the quote-unquote anti-woke black thinkers today. And then there was Ibram Kendi, and the audience is, frankly, the sort of people who I was going to title the elect about eight months later. And Thomas made lots of reflective, interesting points. He was being a public intellectual as we traditionally think of public intellectuals as being. And he gave us a lot to think about. He was reflecting. 
Kendi got up on the same stage and said about 10 things that made no blessed sense at all. This was the first time I had ever seen him in action. I hadn't mm-hmm. thought about him much until then. 10 things that made no sense at all. One of which was he, he was interviewed rather than getting up and just talking like most of us. He, he likes to be interviewed. And he said to the interviewer, you know that thing where the idea was that only white people are allowed to write about racism? Okay, when was that? <laughs> when the fuck when, was that? Yeah. You know, who was ta yeah, build, build, build me a time machine and uh, I'll see if I yeah, can well, find that year. That? You know, he history. asked him, why did you write your book? And, you know, he was implying that he thought it was time that a black person writes about racism. Now, that is utter nonsense. He was saying it with a straight face. And, of course, the audience mm-hmmed and applauded. And this was not a black churchy audience. These were educated white people who know damn well there was never any such time. But because he comes from a certain place and has dreadlocks and is dark-skinned, and Thomas Chatterton Williams doesn't have that theatrical kind of presence, the audience just ate him up despite the fact that he didn't say anything novel or that made any kind of sense. And I'll stop there. As opposed to Thomas Chatterton Williams, who was thought of as just, you know, one of the people being around. That wasn't right. And that made me mad at these white people. I was angry. Mm. I thought, this is a condescension to Black intelligence that you read Black intelligence on the basis of what somebody looks like and the fact that they're balefully telling you that you're a racist. And that's, that's considered intelligence. Whereas Thomas is just some guy up there talking. No, I will not tolerate this. I think it's, I get where these people are coming from, but somebody needs to tell people like this that they're losing sight of the full humanity that they think they're seeing Black people with. What we're for is not to give them the pleasures of self-flagellation. We are whole human beings just like them. And they're beginning not to know it. And unfortunately, they're white thinkers who are massaging them in that way of thinking about Black people without knowing how denigrating, word chosen on purpose, it is to us. It's a really sad thing. It's a very postmodern thing. And I really hope we can get out of it because it, it scares me. This is not what the civil rights leaders 50 years ago were working towards. This is, this is a complete reversion. Yeah, I, I think we should circle on that point again, just because it's so important. I don't want people to miss it. And it's this, this, this idea that there's been an, an inversion of norms here in, it's almost like a, a Nietzschean display of uh, ressentiment, that, that yep. concept that's hard to get a hold of, but it's this your feeling of victimhood kind of implodes and you ne- now pretend to hate the very thing you you feel disad- mm-hmm. disadvantaged by and so i mean we have claims being made that you know the norms just the standard norms of academic achievement like objectivity like you know, getting the right answer in math or showing your work mm-hmm. in math or being on time you know for class i mean just these are these are not norms that anyone needs to adhere to. These are you know, further traces of oppression and, you know, and white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And then you have a, a obvious weakening of standards. Again, you point this out in the book with someone like Nicole Hannah-Jones you know, with the 1619 Project, which is, it betrays obvious failures of scholarship, and that doesn't stop it from getting a Pulitzer. And, and, and it's, in most circles at this point, I think it is just, has been received as this is the clearest articulation of the role that racism has played in American history that we have. I sort I expect my daughters to be taught the 1619 Project in school soon, mm-hmm. right? I've been thinking that too, yeah. 
there's this awakening of standards here, which it is the, is the opposite of actually respecting the black community. It's quite a trick, but I mean, there really is mm-hmm. no dignity in embracing this inversion of values, and yet it is being sold as basically, I think at some one point you say, you know, this is cries of weakness are now being interpreted as the greatest sign of strength. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it is the most pitiless insult. And what it comes down to is, if objectivity and being on time and precision are white, and there's been a little problem with black teens essentially saying that to each other since about 1966, and now it's spreading into something that we're supposed to think of as the, the essence of blackness. What it means is that black people are exciting when, from what I can see, they're doing three things, singing or playing basketball or dancing. I think that really is, is it. The idea is that we're good entertainers. The idea is that we'll be good athletes. And there seems to be a particular excitement with the idea of black people dancing. I think what a lot of this is, is white people can be precise and invent things like clocks and transistors. Black people should jam because there's something true about jamming. It's just as true as harnessing electricity. It's just it's an alternate way of being a valuable human being, of being of value to civilization. And I can't have that. that. That's another side of, and here I know I'm going a place, that's another side of the argument that people make who are saying that the evidence is incontrovertible, that on the average, Black people have lower IQs, and that a civilized way of arranging society should be that Black people should be satisfied. For the most part, there will be the occasional exception, but for the most part, Black people will not be inventing the telescope. Black people will be great athletes and musicians and you know these, these things that we associate with Black people. And I've had people, very smart people, tell me with very civil smiles on their faces that they don't mean this in a racist way. They think that we should learn to see society that way. And I believe them. I do not think, oh, you're just a racist because that's dumb, dumb thought. However, I can't go there. I can't accept it. I think it's premature to suppose that that is what we have to settle for. And if there's a certain amount of personal bias in that, I openly admit it. And I still say that it's a view that deserves to be at the table. But it's one thing. Somebody says that in a suit who's white. Charles Murray says it. And Mm. people want to send him to the planet Jupiter. But then if some person who calls themselves an educator, white or black, basically says the same thing, they're treated as having a new kind of higher wisdom that we must listen to unless we want to be called racists on Twitter. No, it won't do. And as you say, if anybody says these things aren't having real impacts in society, they don't get out much. So let's take a moment to, to um, think about the other form of affirmative action here, the, which goes by the name. And it's... Yeah, what's the other one? The, the actual affirmative action, which seeks to redress these oh, okay, inequalities yeah. in our society, right? I mean, I, I, I do, you know, I, this is perhaps um, more disparaging than some people will be comfortable with, but yeah, I do view the rise of someone like Ibram Kendi as a kind of affirmative action. I mean, just when I when I see how he is playing tennis without the net uh, with such confidence, I do find there's there's something despicable about it. It's I, I just view it as a social problem that he has the influence that he does. But you know, the the classic form of affirmative action is something that I, I've never really known how to think about. I, I mean, I, I guess I have a a bimodal view of it historically, which is at one point it was absolutely necessary, and at, an, at another point it probably became counterproductive. 
and I'm not sure where on the uh, timeline I would uh, I would date those two points, but mm-hmm. I feel like you know what what we have now is first of all the, the background assumption that the the far left uh, will default to here is that you know as you said any inequality anywhere in in a desirable quadrant of culture is susceptible to only one interpretation here this is you mm-hmm. know if, if, if unless you have exactly 13% black representation in every desirable field the explanation can only be racism you know mm-hmm. whether it's overt prejudice or systemic racism you know ie policies that are keeping qualified black applicants out and we just know that's not true mm-hmm. and and so it's truly destructive of people's reputations and of the the institutions to which they belong to make that allegation again and again and again and again and this is not to say we shouldn't root out racism wherever it still exists but exactly we know it is not the cause of there not being exactly 13% black physicists or cardiologists or you know you, you pick your area exactly and and again this is true even if the prior cause the original cause was in fact racism Right? Exactly. You know, so it may yes, it, it may in, in fact be the case that the racism of the the lingering racism of the 1970s was the cause of an imbalance we can find in you know the hard sciences or elsewhere now with respect mm-hmm. to race. And my question for you is, what do you think we should do about that? Yeah, I think that um, we really do have to beware the kind of person who sees things like that and says it is racism. If they truly understood that there's racism in the past and racism now, they wouldn't be so heated up and personally angry at the racism that they're talking about. And they might even use a different term for it. It's a, it, it makes no sense. And so, yeah, if there are not 13% of black physicists, it's not because all of those white physicists need to examine themselves for biases that they didn't know that they had, et cetera. It's, it's utter, utter kabuki that people are being asked to go through. And I think that really what we need to do at this point is start standing up to these people. So for example, the idea that all disparities are due to something called systemic racism. We need to just start saying that's oversimplified. There's racism in the past and there's racism in the present. And sometimes undoing racism's effects from the past is not a matter of battling racism here in the present. There's none left to. The problem is going to resolve itself in different ways. There need to be responsible people in business suits who can start saying that out loud. And in general, this group of what I call the elect, they manage their reign of terror by calling people racist on social media. They genuinely mean that. I don't think that that they had a meeting and decided to use that as a tactic. They genuinely mean it. But because people are so afraid of being called a racist in this very racially enlightened country, such as it is, it means that they get what they want and it leads them to the misimpression that what they want is what the world wants or should have. And however you slice it, the world starts going their way and institutions start falling to pieces, although they think of it as progress. That can't be. And so I'm hoping that as we come out of the pandemic and as we kind of rub our eyes and look at what these people are going to do if we actually let them have their way in institutions across the nation, is start getting used to being called a racist on Twitter. And I mean Mm -hmm. that exactly as that, and it is mostly Twitter. 
you're gonna get called a racist on Twitter if you don't give these people what they want. But if you're in a position to live on despite that, not everybody is, but a lot of people are. If you could just have a spine, let the people call you names, realize that Twitter is not a real thing and that you can still cook your food, you know, sleep with your spouse and take care of your kids. Really, I think we would have a better nation. It's interesting, the things that we're asked to learn how to do as part of being civilized. One of those things was to learn not to think of black people as apes. That's something that took an awful lot of work, quite unfortunately, to learn in the 1970s that racism is wrong, that you're supposed to fight racism down in yourself, try to extract it. That's something that happened from about 1966 to 1983 that people don't fully understand the seismic impact of for various reasons. That takes work. Being civilized means that you're educated, you're led out of, as the you know, Latin meaning of that is. Well, now we mm. need something else, something else where we have to add a patch onto our normal behavior. And that is that this business of the educated white person thinking that to be called a racist on Twitter is equivalent to being called a pedophile, that's got to stop. People need to be a little stronger mm. because if they aren't, if this sort of person cannot learn that being called a racist by somebody who isn't really thinking too clearly is not the end of their life, then these people win. And I really don't want to see, for example, what American education will be like when people who think this simplistically for self-gratificational reasons and can't be reasoned with end up having their way. It simply won't do. I get the feeling, Sam, I may be wrong, but I get the feeling people are beginning to see it. And I really mm. hope that Woke Racism, my book, can just be one part of helping people realize that you're not a bad person to try to make sense about race. That's what we're being told. If you try to think logically about race, you are a moral pervert. No, that's not true. I think everybody knows deep down that isn't true. They need to start asserting it. Well, it, what you're describing there is a devaluation of the term racist, but um, this is a point you make in the book. It's another one of these strange contradictions that's found at the heart of this, this catechism. The power that the woke have here to spread terror among uh, all right-thinking people is really can be distilled down to this point of just how bad an outcome it is to be called racist in public. Mm -hmm. That to have that you know sincerely thought about you, I mean, it is a kind of reputational murder. But yet, that is itself a sign of how much progress we've made exactly. on the topic of race. Right? I mean, mm -hmm. it, it it is so aberrant to be a racist anywhere that any right-thinking person could want to live and function in our mm -hmm. society. That yeah. it is. So, so it's one of these paradoxes. The fact that the woke have so, exert so much power with this one word is a sign that their whole project is misconceived on this point. We've made enormous yep. progress. Huge. It's, it's one of those things where you hate to strike this chord because it means that you're on your way out in a way. but I think you have to be a certain age these days to fully understand how precious that is. And I kind of mean my age, because I was born in 1965, and I was born to a mother who made me very aware of what racism was and that it wasn't just the N-word and people burning crosses. And I come of age in the 1970s and the early 1980s, and I've been around ever since then. So I have you know, vivid, relatively mature memories of how even educated, you know, urban white people in private schools thought of black people back then. And 1975 was stunningly different from even 1960, even 1965. A lot of progress had been made, but still, 
I remember a time when to be called a racist, to be called a bigot, was not for even, you know, the NPR listening, if NPR existed yet, NPR listening, New York Times reading white person. That wasn't the very worst thing. And if you told a lot of them they were racist, they would say, fuck you. You know, they'd just say, no, no, I'm not. That's the way it was. And everybody then felt like they were living at the end of time, just like we do now. It felt like a very modern era. Things are different where people are that afraid. I genuinely think if you're 30 instead of 56, you don't remember that. You don't realize how much change there's been. And so what you see is what's been going on since roughly about 2004. But that's not informed enough about the past. Now, I'm beginning to sound like you just haven't seen. But I don't Mm -hmm. mean that I'm elderly. I mean that I'm middle-aged and that things have changed really rapidly, even since things I remember white kids saying around me in 1983 and feeling, you know, quite, quite normal. What was considered a decent joke? What was considered something you could just say outward? I remember white kids saying, well, the reason so many black people are in the ghetto, as one called it then, is because they don't try hard enough. And then just say it in a dormitory. And that person was not chased off the campus by the diversity coordinator. That person was just thought of as a little obnoxious. We've gotten way beyond that. And yet a lot of people don't know and don't want to admit that, yeah, the idea that somebody will allow all of this savagery and defenestration to happen in the name of being afraid of being called a racist is evidence that we don't need these people. We do not need this complete transformation of our procedure that they claim. All these people make it sound like it's 1893. But mm. no, we've, we've made a little progress since then. Well, I know uh, your time is short here, so I, I just want to raise one further point with you, mm-hmm. John. It's just we, we've gone so far here that we've subverted the very logic upon which the civil rights movement was based. I mean, the, the idea of getting to a time that is post-racial, where colorblindness is a legitimate goal to have striven for and, and, and a goal that has been achieved, where, you know, the color of a person's skin has, you know, literally no moral or political significance. That is not only not the goal of this new religion, to have that as a goal is a form of racism. Yeah, in the end, you I, mean, white, I was going to say white right. privilege, yeah, or, or mm-hmm. racism. You know, it's like the, the, what, we, what we want, if we're right thinking, woke adherence now is a world where differences at the level of skin are politically and morally indelible. I, I, I mean, I, I've, you know, I, I have not waded so far into this literature to, as to have encountered a, anything like an attempt at a, a coherent justification for that, but that, that just seems so obviously perverse to me that I can't see how people are not recoiling from it. Yeah, it's hard. It's this Nietzschean ressentiment that you're talking about. Also, the natural human desire for tribalism. This can happen in any human beings, and it happens among Black American human beings as well. The new idea is not that we're all going to melt into just seeing each other's characters. That's considered old-fashioned. Instead, we have this essentialized notion of Blackness, although damned if anybody knows what it is. And I'm really afraid that, in effect, this conception of a Blackness that we're supposed to cherish and decenter the whiteness. From what I see, and I haven't deeply researched this either because I suspect it would be a very elusive target if you tried to actually talk to people about it, but from what I see in terms of implications, inferences that you can make, the blackness consists of documenting and exploring racism and jamming. 
Those are the two things. Mm -hmm. First, you want to talk about how oppressed you are. And then instead of being precise, you're going to connect your body and your soul to the beat in charismatic ways. And when you do that, you're seen as channeling some sort of truth. Frankly, it's almost like a, a kind of prayer. I'm not sure what else this blackness is unless you talk about platitudinous things like, you know, community, et cetera, which every human group on earth has. It's basically documenting racism and jamming. That to me is one of the most uncivilized propositions I have ever heard. And I think we need to go back to the content of our character, even though you end up sacrificing that warm tribal feeling. Maybe we need to look to developing some other tribal feeling, which is maybe hard in America because America is based on being an immigrant country where the notion of being an American is always going to be somewhat amorphous and sometimes even dangerous. But nevertheless, we've got to give up this sense that there is an evil whiteness and a noble blackness and that never the two shall meet. That won't do. It's never going to work. Well, ironically, John, you have both jammed and channeled the truth in your new book. So <laughs> I, I, I hope so. I recommend people uh, get their hands on it immediately. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Sam. Thank you very much. 